Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. Last week, I, got, I had just recently got back from our trip to Senegal, and I told you about an old man who was very, very, very sick, uh, likely within two weeks of death, who we had as a Muslim man who was the father of a witch doctor who had not found healing uh, in the ways that he knew. And we entered his hut uh, by invitation and we asked if we could pray for him, knowing that we were Christians, knowing that we would call on the name of our God um, and not be, not be polite, not be um, less than convicted about who we're praying to, that we, would, that we would pray to our God. And we asked if that would be okay to him. And he said yes. His wife said, look, if God heals him, he'll be a believer so we prayed, we prayed with conviction, and then uh, the organization MIS, Mission Inner Senegal, that we went with is connected to a hospital. So we, we said, um, we want God to heal you. We know that God will heal you one way or another through simply by prayer or by prayer and God intervening through medical attention. God is all over this. And so we made arrangements for him to get in a vehicle and drive a couple hours uh, to the nearest city, to the hospital. Um, two hours after our service ended, I got a picture of him sitting up in bed. That, that overnight, through the IV, he had strength, that he had been listless, and uh, like man, the guy looked near dead. He's sitting up in bed. And I got an email last night saying the hospital sent him home. They say, your infection's gone. And you, you still have healing to go. The, the open wound on his foot still needs cleaning and daily attention, but the effect, infection is gone. He's no longer uh, septic, and he's, uh, he's well on his road to healing, that God, God is doing something in his life. And so um, we need to keep praying for healing, and beyond just physical healing, that God would use this to call him home to Jesus that God would use this to call him and his family into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ where he finds redemption and he finds the light of the world that that could be, that could be his. I want to tell you another story and a way that we get to be a part of things that God is doing over in Senegal. Um, one of the visits to one of the compounds, the extended family uh, living areas that have all kind of the individual family huts, we sat down with an old man who has a club foot uh, likely had it um, either from birth or from very early childhood, um, and now is going blind, virtually blind, and you can see the cloudiness in his eyes. The man is a believer. Uh, the man has had in the past strong conflict with the pastor of the church, and now they are fierce allies. Uh, now he's, uh, he can't say enough about the pastor and the ministry that the pastor is and the encouragement that the pastor is to him. Um, and the, this... Man was uh, reflecting the light of God. Joy and peace were his, um, and yet his eyesight is fading. So we, we asked, we, had, we actually had a doctor on our trip, and he said, it's a cataract. It can get removed. It's not a big deal for us. We have um, our health care for, uh, for all the problems and the, all the grumbling we might do. We have incredible health care and incredible access to health care. This man um, does not. And so 
um, DR, we get to be a part of it for $250. We get to send this man to a hospital to have his cataract removed um, to say, our God is a healing God and you have a body of believers with you who want to take care of you, who want, who want your eyesight returned. We get to be a part of that. The church gets to be a part of that. And God gets glory in all of that. So we're going to be sending $250 um, and a man's sight is, uh, is on the way back. I, I just love that. I love, I love being able to join God in what he's doing, um, even if we only get a small uh, piece of that, right? Um, good, good stuff happening. Uh, good stuff happening. So we're a few weeks in now to our series in Colossians. And we're calling it greater than the old, if you go back to fifth grade math or whenever that was introduced, that old alligator symbol said, Jesus is greater than anything this world has to offer. Jesus is greater than any other religion, any other philosophy, any other uh, smarts my brain can come up with. He's better than any dream I can dream, the American dream or otherwise. He's better than any success or achievement or accolade or attaboy or attagirl that I can that I can produce on my own. He's better. He offers me a better, a greater identity than anything I could create or come up with on my own. For everything, for everything the world has to offer, which may be good or may not be, Jesus is greater than. We're talking in this series about how when we have trouble, the answer is Jesus. And that's not cliche. That's, we need to understand what that really means. But if I can figure out how to apply more of Jesus, more of his presence, more of his spirit, more of the gifts, more of his way, more of the mission that he sent me on, more of him, well, then we're on the right track. Jesus is greater than anything the world has to offer. And this is not, this is not a Jesus and Let's combine Jesus with some other things. In Africa, animism is a huge deal, and you'll find Catholic animists, people that believe in spirits hiding behind every bush that will jump out and get you, and so you do everything you can to appease them, and they'll mis mix that with the Catholic faith, and it, it becomes uh, deadly. And that's a, that could sort of be called a Jesus and type of approach. And Colossians sets forth, and we affirm and declare, we, will, we live a Jesus, period, kind of life. And we don't, want, we don't want to add anything. We recognize that he's in this world, that he's active in all kinds of things, that we see Jesus in things. But we, we need to fight against Jesus and things, right? So Paul is writing this. Paul is writing this. And especially this first letter, or this first section of the letter, it's so poetic, some people have actually called it a song. Some people have actually thought that Paul took a, uh, a worship song that the church had been singing and uh, used it as the introduction of his book. Whether it's that or whether he wrote it and came up with it, um, it certainly is full of praise as he starts this chapter. And what he's getting at is that is that God is not simply a God to be studied in a text. God is not simply a God to be learned about. God is a God to be worshipped. 
God is a God to be praised. God is a God to have a relationship with, that he makes himself known to us. And you could go so far as to say, if you study God and you don't find yourself in worship, something is sick. If you study God and your head fills with the knowledge of God and that doesn't bring you to a place of worship and relationship in him, something is sick inside. Now we want to be about a knowledge of God that leads to a love of God and a worship of God so that we praise him. Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? One of, one of the reoccurring themes in student ministry that I had uh, often throughout the years was kids coming to me saying, we've learned this before, I'd like to learn something deep. I'd like to go deeper, I've learned it. And the question that I tried to ask almost every time was, are you applying what you've learned? Are you living in what you've learned? Well, no, but, I'd like, but I want the challenge that will motivate me. And sometimes the most basic answer is the one that we need to live in before we go on to higher things. And so I just start out this morning saying, do you know Jesus? Do you walk with him? Are you breathing in his life and exhaling that as you live? Are you in a relationship? Because I'll tell you, study alone is a dead end. What God offers ultimately is a relationship. Paul says, everything else aside, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power that raised him from the dead. And I, I want to be a part of that. Do you know Jesus? We're going to read this same section that we've read the last two weeks. Um, and then we're going to um, kind of chunk out the middle three verses in it. Verses 18 through 20 in uh, chapter 1. So as we dive into Colossians, um, let's stand together. Uh, just this morning in a sign of reverence to say, God, uh, we want to hear from you. These are your words. Help us to understand them. This is Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. Do we have it on the screen? Can we? Otherwise, I can read it. Colossians 1, starting in 15. Jesus, he is the, in, the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, 
Paul became a minister. You can have a seat. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to see you. Uh, we want to know what it means when the scripture declares that you're, you're our head, that you're the head of the church, the head of your body here. We want to know what it means to say you're, you're the beginning and the firstborn uh, from the dead. Father, may we know you and may we know the life that you offer. May we see you as greater than. Amen. So we're just going to go through uh, verses 18 to 20 this morning and unpack it. We, uh, we did the, the previous three verses last week, and we're going to do these verses, and then next week we're going to look at uh, 21 through 23. These verses, which I think um, I have in the past have had a tendency to just skip over, to say, let's get to the instruction. Let's get to the, what do you want me to do, God? And sometimes it's good just to say, I, I just want to linger. Jesus, I just want to know who you are and how you meet us. So in 18, it says, Jesus is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In verses 15 through 17, Jesus is presented as creator God. Jesus is presented as being fully God and present and active in creation. That by him and through him and in him and, and for him, all things were created. That God speaks and Jesus is called the word of God. He speaks and everything comes into being. Jesus is there. He's the creator. And uh, 15 through 17 starts to talk about him also then as sustainer. Not only does he create things, he doesn't just step back then and let things all go. He continues to hold things together. So the old, the old childish kid song, he's got the whole world in his hands, is a deeply theological idea. That God is the sustainer of the cosmos. He holds everything in his hands we have the creator and the sustainer. And this section moves to the reconciler. God the creator and God the creator, or God the creator and God the sustainer becomes God the reconciler. This is the, the God of heaven. God Almighty becomes God in the flesh and God on the cross. That God, one writer called it, God most high becomes God most nigh. That God up there came down here and dwelt among us. He lowered himself. He, humbled. he was always humble. Because he's humble, he got off the throne and he came for us. And he finds himself on the cross, not accidentally. In verse 18, Paul says Jesus is the head of the body, the church. And what it means to be the head is to say, Jesus is supreme. Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is in charge. Jesus is the highest authority of the church. And he's the source of life. So just with a body, you can cut an arm off, it'll hurt, right? And you'll go through, you'll go through life 
never the same again. You can cut a, a foot off and you'll go through life with a limp. If you cut the head off, you're done, right? You're just done. If Jesus is the head and he gets cut off from his body, what happens to the body? It's done. So Tony stands up this morning and says, gospel and community and mission, that Jesus is everything. Jesus is our source of life, and in him we find our being. And if we cut ourselves off from Jesus, it's for nothing. And I would say it's worse than nothing. It, we're like dead, gone, meaningless, and we are to be pitied. We talk about an up, an in, and an out. And if we lose the up, we lose our worship. We lose our identity. And we get really good at taking care of each other or taking care of others. But we have no life to give. We have no life in us, and we have no life to give. If we only ever focused on the up, then we're missing something. As Jesus said, I want you to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I want you to love each other as you love yourself. There is a horizontal and a vertical dynamic to walking with God. But often, often I think we can, we can forget about our vertical alignment. We can forget about our head and we can start to go through life just taking care of each other, just relying on the strength that we have or on the way that God has provided in the past. And we need to continually continually submit ourselves. So, who would Paul say is the leader of the church at Colossae? Jesus. Yeah? That Jesus is the head of the body. Who would we maintain today is the head of Damascus Road? We better get that right. We better get that right. We are in deep trouble if we don't seek to always keep Jesus on the throne here. If we would replace that, if somebody would call me the leader of Damascus Road or the head of Damascus Road, I hope you correct them. That doesn't mean that we get to stamp Jesus' name on it and say, thus saith the Lord, and everything that we do is inspired by God. Okay? We do our best efforts to exalt him and raise him and follow him, and we're going to get it wrong sometimes. And so we lead with humility. We follow him in humility. But we always continually strive to put him on the throne, right? We always continually strive to put him on the throne. Gospel-centered means Jesus is everything. Jesus is supreme. He is our authority, and he is our source of life. Paul says Jesus is the head of the body, the church. And then he says, he continues in verse 18, he says, Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So he says dead. And we're talking about Jesus as the source of life. Jesus is the head, and life comes from him. And now Jesus is called the firstborn, the firstborn from the dead. So something happened. Death doesn't just, I mean, death, death is violent. Death should not be. When God creates life, death isn't in the picture. And now he's the firstborn of the dead. So we say, what happened? 
And in the same way that Genesis opens up with the creator God creating everything, starting everything in motion so that he can sustain it, by three chapters in, we see that we are, are pulled by our own devices away from him. That Adam and Eve look at the tree, that God, God didn't put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden to say, don't touch that because I want to hold out on you. Don't touch that because I want you to show you I'm in charge. God put that in there to teach them, to teach them about the beauty of life in him. And to say, if you look elsewhere, you're cutting yourself off from life. If you look elsewhere, you cut yourself off. But the lure of what we don't have is so strong. We want to be our own gods. We want to be the master of our own ship. And we continually reach for what we don't have. And even if God is supplying for us, we often take the approach Adam and Eve did, and we have continued it through history. That we have continued to say, I'm not going to wait for God. I'm going to race ahead and take this on my own. I'm, I'm going to rule this. And when we cut ourselves off from the head, what happens? We die. We die. Hell is an eternal reality of people who have cut themselves off from the head. People who have cut themselves off from life. And now we're so sick that we're born into it. We're born into it. Without Jesus breathing life into us, we are dead. And Paul says, but death isn't the final. Death isn't the last thing that happens. While we, while we often live for pleasure at all costs and find ourselves dead, Jesus said, I won't let you stay that way. I won't let you stay that way. In John 10, 10, Jesus says, uh, the thief comes to kill and steal and destroy. That there are things that look good. In the garden, Eve said, you know, like she looked at the fruit on this tree and it looked desirable. Well, yeah, it does. We don't, we don't sin because it's ugly looking. We sin because it's attractive, right? We sin because it, it represents something we want. The problem with sin is that it never delivers, and we end up in chains. She looked at it, and it was desirable. And it's, it's the thief coming to deceive. Jesus says, the thief comes to kill and steal and destroy, but I have come so that you might have life. And not just go through life, but have it abundantly. Jesus says, I came so that you could have abundant life. Adam, with Eve, we could say, were the firstborn of the dead. Right? They were created, and they were the first to experience death. They were the firstborn of the walking dead. And we follow in their path. And Jesus is different. Jesus is the firstborn what? From the dead. 
So he's not contained by death. The creator and the sustainer gets off his throne and he enters our world. He takes on flesh. He dies on the cross, but death can't contain him. And he rises, and in his rising, Paul calls him the firstborn from the dead. Firstborn has a promise in it. Sometimes firstborn is like supreme and overarching, and there's a prominent position. Sometimes firstborn is sequential. Jesus is sequentially the first person to rise from the dead. You know who else rises from the dead? Every single person who puts their life in Christ. Every single person who finds their life in Christ will one day rise from the grave. That resurrection isn't just something that we believe that happened 2,000 years ago. We believe that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. That he started something. Death was destroyed that day. And somewhere down the road, death is destroyed completely. That we rise In Christ, we rise. He's the firstborn, and we follow after him. Jesus conquered the death that we earn. He created us, he sustains us, and when we cut ourselves off from him, he comes to redeem us. Do you know that? Do you not just know it, but do you know it? Deep inside that Jesus came to redeem you, to buy you back, to steal you from death, to steal you from the thief. Jesus came so that you could have life and live in it. Verses 19 through 20. Paul had, in 15 through 17, he had said, all things were created and sustained in him and by him and for him. And Paul comes back to this chorus of in and through and by. Starting in 19, it says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of this cross. Paul is all about Jesus. It all keeps coming back to Jesus. That's why we say, when we have trouble, the answer is Jesus. That we can understand him more fully and make that we can know him more intimately. Paul says, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. If you are in Christ, the Spirit comes to make his home in you. You know that, right? The Spirit has come and indwelled, and yet we're not God. It's not a perfect indwelling. There's still a battle going on within, right? We battle between the flesh and the spirit all the time. And in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All of God dwelt in Jesus perfectly. When we look at him, we see God in full. The creator and the sustainer becomes the reconciler. And Paul talks about, uh, he talks about, uh, he made peace by the blood of his cross. Blood is a term of violence here. Jesus just didn't go to sleep and die for us, right? Like, I'm going to rip Van Winkle and then we'll all be happy. 
blood, Jesus' death came by violence. And the cross is a term of humiliation. The cross was not a nice way to die. The cross was a cross. And like we get, I don't know if you grew up Catholic and you walk into the church and you see Jesus in the cloths uh, on the cross and it's powerful, but to come and recognize like there's not even cloth there. People are stripped naked and hung out in front of everybody. You talk about the ultimate, the ultimate humiliation. And as their body loses function as death comes close, there is nothing, nothing nice and honorable about crucifixion. By his blood and by humiliation, Jesus bought us. It cost him everything. In the beginning, God created all things, all things by Christ. In the end, God will redeem all things through Christ, through what he has done and what he's still doing today. Almighty God becomes God on the cross. And he, Jesus gives a picture of this um, in the Last Supper in John 13 when he, when he backs up from the table and he kind of puts on the servant's attire and he starts to wash his disciples' feet. The cross was the ultimate expression of his humility, but he lived it throughout his life. And so they're all reclining. And I will tell you what, um, the joke in Senegal over the years was, at the end of the trip, we're going to take a picture and see who's got the dirtiest feet. Wear sandals, and you're walking through sand, and you're walking through dirt, and you're walking through goat poop and you know, like whatever else. And by the end of the week, your feet are pretty filthy. That's very, very similar to the kind of uh, walking that Jesus did in his day. So you walk up and recline at a table. Where do you think their feet were? Kind of pushed off behind them, right? I don't want your stinky feet anywhere close to our food. And the servant's job was to come by and wash their feet. Nasty feet. And Jesus says, I'm your leader. I'm doing this for you. What do I want you to know about this? Jesus says, what do I want you to know about the way that you will lead? That we follow our leader who showed himself the ultimate servant. And we take up our cross. And we take up our towel. And we get in the business of serving others. Sometimes it's humiliating, and that's okay. It's good once in a while for us to have our egos knocked down, right? Application for the church in Colossae. Paul would say, if you know that Christ is the image of God, and if you know that all the fullness of God dwells in Christ, then you should also know that you will not find fullness in anything else. If all of God dwells in Christ, you will not find satisfaction, true satisfaction, anywhere else. Stop looking. Jesus is more than enough. Where, where do you look for fulfillment? To, to what 
what fills you up? When we get filled by our, by our position, our jobs, I can start to feel real good that I'm a pastor. But that should not be my identity. And that should not, fit, that should not be what fills me. You get a promotion at work, I think you're right to celebrate in it. But it should not say, I'm worth more now. My identity is not caught up whether I have a very lucrative job or whether I have no job. That is, that is not identity defining. That's not fulfillment defining. One of the things that you'll hear from people who come back from uh, mission trips to third world countries is like, they have so much joy and they have nothing. And on one level, I want to say, okay, okay, it's not, it's not a fantasy. It's not a fairy tale. They struggle and they still want and they still have needs. And we can't just say, may the joy of God be with you and I'm going to go home to Burger King. Okay. But they do show us that joy is not dependent upon stuff. Where do you find fulfillment? If you are not looking to Jesus, I'll guarantee you, you're not finding it. And if you think you've found it, you're kidding yourself. You'll wake up one day feeling, knowing yourself empty. Because a cabin up north, or a really nice boat, or three cars, or what like, all of that stuff is stuff we can strive for. I was living in Colorado for a while, and people had stuff, and like that's a playground. It's a beautiful place to live, and they had a super high suicide rate because they came to the end of accomplishment. And I said, I got nothing. Find your fulfillment in Christ and delight in him. May your study of him lead to worship of him, and, and that will fill you. The second point would be God's plan from before creation was to reconcile all things through Christ. And that has not been revised. That plan was plan A. And that plan is still in motion. That God is in the business of reconciling all things. Are you among the reconciled? Have you been reconciled? Does Jesus, has he become your life? You can't, you can't just go to church and say, I'm good. You can't just like say you're a Christian and be good. Have you received the reconciliation that Jesus bought? Have you received his spirit, the gift of God to say, I want to come and make my home in you. I want to fill you. Are you among the reconciled? If you, if you doubt that, you either need some strong encouragement or, or you need to deal with reality that says, I, I am not yet. And I don't want the story to end there. If you have questions about Jesus, or if you've been playing with Jesus, Jesus and kind of uh, all kinds of other stuff, I pray that God would wreck you 
so that you get to a Jesus period kind of position. And say, that's what I want. That's what I want. I need life. I will only find it in him. And he came to reconcile me in all of my stuff, all of my sin. Are you among the reconciled? And if so, are you, are you taking an active part in the reconciliation of others? Are you becoming a vessel that God uses to reach out to others? That God saved you, not because of your worth, but because of his love. The kids are learning about Jonah today. And God sent Jonah to Nineveh. And at the end, Jonah's kind of a depressing book. It, like, if it ended with three chapters, like, no, I'm going to run. Now I'm going to swallow you by a, a whale or whatever, big fish. Spit you out. Go to Nineveh. Everybody turns to God. Yay! If it ended at chapter 3, it'd be an awesome short story. But there's a fourth chapter where Jonah whines and he says, God, I knew it. I knew you'd save them. You said you would and you're good on your word. Why do you have to go and save them? And he whines and pouts. And he said, God, just kill me now. Like drama. Drama boy. <laughs> but we have that same kind of approach. Somehow, I think God saves me by grace, reconciles me by grace, but I look at others and I, I don't want God's goodness to rest on them. And I don't want God's blessing to rest on them because they're ugly. They're mean. They're, they're on the other side. And God says, like, I tore the dividing wall on the cross that division split. That division went away. We are all unworthy. And Christ came to redeem everyone. Are you playing an active role in helping others find Jesus? In helping people find redemption? Third point would be, if Christ sustains the universe, then surely we can know that he's able to sustain us. Right? Jesus tells a story in Matthew 6. Or he, he's like, it's not really a story. They're out walking. And I picture Jesus looking out and saying, hey, there's some birds. I can teach about that. Because I see God in that. Look at the birds. They're not worried. God takes care of them. Look at the flowers. Solomon, Solomon had all the riches of the world, but he wasn't clothed, clothed like the flowers were. And he says, if God can take care of the birds and the flowers like that, you know how much more valuable you are? You can trust. You can trust that God will take care of you. That does not mean that God will make all pain go away. That does not mean that God will make everything nice in your world. That God will deliver all the stuff that you want. What it means is, God will take care of you. God will take care of you. Trust, trust, trust. And trust turns to praise. And praise turns to hope. Like Emma quoted Tim Dunn. The Christian version of hope is not I hope that happens someday. The Christian version of hope is I know this will happen someday. 
someday. I have this confident expectation of what God is doing. Things are not as they should be. But we have a God who redeems. We have a God who reconciles. And it means that we can dream. Martin Luther King Jr. in his I Have a Dream speech. If you have not read it, or if you haven't read it recently or listened to it, it is, it is so insanely powerful. This is a man who has a strong faith in God and looks out at the world and says, this world is broken and it's not as it should be, and yet I have a God, and in my God I have a dream. And he's not talking about this flippant hope, dreamy. He's talking about it an expectant reality that one day this will happen, and we get to be about bringing it here today. He's, this is a line in it. He says, like, we look out at the world and we see the brokenness, and yet, quote, we refuse to believe that the bank, the bank of justice is bankrupt. Isn't that beautiful? We refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. Tweak it just a little bit to say, we believe God is still fully active today. God is still redeeming. God is still reconciling. God is still bringing justice. And God still expects us to be justice bringers. Over and over and over and over and over, Dr. King said, I have a dream today. And his dream was met with urgency. Urgency of the need to join with God in pursuing justice. His dream led him to hope. And it was based in his faith. He wrote, with this faith, we'll, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. That God is not simply redeeming us and reconciling us for a vertical relationship important and life-giving as that is, that God is redeeming and reconciling us so that we become reconcilers, never forgetting our head, never just simply becoming about a horizontal relationship, but not dismissing a horizontal relationship. So where there is injustice, we get on the end of justice and we fight for it. Where there are people who are oppressed, we would say, we need to bring freedom. We need to bring we need, to, we need to fight for the equality that is already in their heart, that God placed in them, that we get on that. Dr. King had a dream. I really do think that we need more dreamers in this world. We don't give up. We don't accept the way things are. And we don't accept that the way things are, the way things have to remain we know that the God of wonders has not ceased. And so we know that the wonders have not ceased, right? 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has conceived. And yet the Spirit shows us these things. He shows us what God is about. God is active in redemption. One final thought, okay? And then we'll close up. Paul is speaking in a pluralistic and relativistic world. Great. <laughs> Let's talk about that for a little bit. Can you throw that picture up?
Paul's talking in a pluralistic and relativistic world. Pluralistic means there are many different convictions that are held in this area. Some people believe this, and some people believe this, and some people believe this. Um, and, and that's kind of where it is. Relativism says it's all one and the same. You believe this, and you believe, and we're all, we just all agree. It's all, it all kind of washes into nothing. Okay? In this picture, um, this is from our trip. This is in the church building. On the left is Pastor Joseph. He's the pastor of the church in Goodell, um, sitting uh, in the red shirt. Um, sitting in the red shirt is Antoine, Pastor Antoine. He lives in a neighboring village. He was with us all week as a translator. Sitting next to him is one of my good friends, Dokor. Dokor, uh, also a strong, strong believer, and with us the whole week as a translator. Um, these men know five languages. It's just one of the gifts of living in a place that doesn't, like English isn't predominant as you get to know other languages. Okay? So three Christians, you know who the man on the right is? The chief of the village, who is a Muslim, having a having a meeting together in a church building where they're talking about the welfare of their village. And us going and being a part of it. And you know what the Muslim chief said? I like what the church is doing. You know how strong the opinions and convictions were in that room? There is no dumbing down in Senegal. They know who we stand in. When we go, we pray in Jesus' name and in Jesus' name only. There is no and. There is no weak conviction and yet, that doesn't mean there's no respect. Pluralism says, you can have your strong convictions and we can coexist. That, doesn't, that does not mean you have less conviction. That doesn't mean you have a weak faith or a weak stance in anything else. But it means we can be here and respect one another. And there are things that we can work on together. There is a deep respect. It's humbling. We, we can learn. We have such a polarized society right now. In the church and the secular society, in the political world, there's, there's very little that's not polarized right now. We here, Damascus Road and in Madison and in the United States, could learn so much from a simple meeting in a church in a village in Senegal where Christians and Muslims are coming together and yet strong in their convictions. We can do that, right? We should pursue the strongest convictions that God would have us have. And we should not waver in them. We should not cave to what the world wants and demands. And yet we should do it with a kind of humility and a kind of respect and a kind of love that even though we disagree, they would say, I like what you're doing. I like what you're doing. We can do that. So may we recognize Jesus as greater than. 
And may we be filled only by him. May we count ourselves among the reconciled by Jesus and help others to find their reconciliation in him. May we recognize that the one who created and sustains the entire cosmos can sustain us as well. May that, may that turn into a trust that leads to praise, that points us to hope. We are free to dream because we have a God who redeems. Let's pray. Father, we want to lift you high. Jesus, you, you have the name that is greater than any other name. That you are beyond, you are greater than, you are far surpassing anything that we could come up or dream up or cook up. That in you, in you we find our life and our being. In you we are filled. We want to recognize you as our authority. We want to bow to you, to submit to you, to obey you. We want to do it with a fear that draws us close to you, not a fear that, that turns us, uh, causes us to turn and run away, but a fear that is a deep respect and devotion. Would you, would you help us to bend our knees and bow before you and you only? Would you give us a strength and a courage to stand with convictions in you? Would you fill us, Spirit? Show us our redemption. And would you make us, would you make us people who are fiercely, fiercely working for others' redemption as well? We love you. Jesus, we pray in your name only. Amen.